I need to take time and go through some of the stuff. You guys remember everything we were talking about? We're going to be in Colossians 2, uh, 9 to 15. Those are the verses we're going to be in. We stopped at four reasons to resist the empty heresy. Is what I titled it. The four reasons that Paul gives to resist the empty heresy that was going on at that time. So we're going to just reread. We'll go back to verse 6, 6 to 15. So we can have a better idea and get it back into the memory where we're at. So it says, <clears throat> Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So it's all about Christ right here, alive in Christ. Um, some of them might be captioned a little bit differently. But there was a lot of heresy going on. I'm going to go back a little bit and just recap kind of what we went over. We went over uh, the warning against the heresy in verse 8, <clears throat> you know, where he tells them, see to it that no one takes you captive by the different things that were going on at that time, the philosophies, the demons, the doctrines all those false teachings that were going around. We also seen um, what Paul was talking about, like walk in Christ. That was this constant reminder to them. Stay in Christ. Stay to the, stick to the gospel. Stick to Christ. You don't need nothing else. You don't need other teachers. You don't need to hear no new gospel. You know, that's it. Just stick to Christ. Walk in him. That was his statement. And that was through verses like 6 through 7 is where you've seen that the most. So now we're going to be in 9 to 15, and, and in Colossians uh, 2, 9 and verse 10 also, Paul offers his first reason for why the Colossians shouldn't be enamored by the heresy that's going on, right? In Colossians 2, 9 through 10, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So this is because, you know, while apparently the heresy that was going around it, it promised a deeper like experience of the presence of God. This is just kind of an, an assumption. This is what I see from reading the text, right? That there was these promises going around, these heresies, some, something that had to draw the people away from Christ, right? So looking at the language that Paul used earlier in the Christ hymn in Colossians 1, uh, verse 19, where he says that, he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Right? Looking at that and looking at this heresy, I'm going to ask you guys the first question. How do you guys see Paul counteracting the empty claims of the heresies that, he, that are being taught? Remember the heresies was like verse 8, where it says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, you know, according to human tradition according to elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So what do you guys think? Like, how does Paul counteract those claims? Well, one of the, while everybody jumps, I know everybody wants to jump in and say something, but while they um while they think of what they're gonna say, um, the um what one of 
one of the things that he's countering is by saying that by saying that the fullness of deity uh, dwells in bodily form, um, basically saying that he's fully God and fully human, and um, that there is uh, unlike other, the other teachers were saying, it couldn't be so. You know, the Gnostics um, saying if he was if he truly was a, a flesh, then he then he has sin, and uh, therefore um, uh, he you know Paul you know these these statements that Paul is saying, uh, we read them um, you know on the surface. Um, as you know, obviously we're, we're not living in Paul's time, but this is like some pretty strong language to them, you know, saying, you know, Jesus is fully God, um, you know, deity. And, um, he holds that. So I think he's countering, uh, what we like, we just said in verse eight by saying that, um, saying, you know, don't be led away by these, you know, these elementary principles or, you know, traditions of men or whatever it is, uh, philosophy, empty philosophy, um, empty deception, I'm sorry. And, um, so uh so yeah i think i think that word deity um is extremely important that that he is the godhead that in him is the godhead or however you want to put it and so um yeah because the gnostics would not approve of that by no stretch uh by no stretch yeah 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 perfect man hit it right on the head basically just reminding the church of who christ is you know it's just like this is it this is all you need he reminds them what, what Christ accomplished, what's been accomplished in him, you know, that he alone is fully God and that Jesus is the head, rule, you know, and all authority of everything. So, all right, cool. Anybody else want to add anything? <coughs> all right, let's go, let's move on then to verses 11 and 12. So in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, Paul provides us with a second reason for why his audience should resist these heresies. And he says that it is because in Christ, they were circumcised spiritually. You know, this, this is definitely debated. It's a big debated com component of like an overall scenario of what's going on. But it is agreed that there was a significant Jewish strain going on to this false teaching which is where I was talking about like, you know, according to human traditions and stuff like that. We know that the Jews held on to their traditions and to their laws a lot. So there was a lot of Jewish influence going on at that time. So this was another, uh, this was another reason that Paul provides for everyone to not fall into that, you know, saying that they were circumcised spiritually. They don't need to be circumcised, you know, physically anymore. Like that doesn't matter. It's all about Christ. Um, Colossians 2.16 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment, judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And these are all things that the Jews held on to dearly, right? This is like their main thing. Certain foods, certain drinks, certain festivals, the Sabbath, you know, new moons, just different things that were going on at that time. So the heresy, um, it may have prescribed like circumcision to be pleasing to God. I'm sure that's most likely what the Jews were saying. You know, I can't say 100% that's what was going on, but I'm just assuming from what I'm reading that this was one of those things going on. And that's why Paul says, you know, it's in Christ. You were circumcised spiritually, right? Um, based on those clues, though, that we've seen in the text, you know, what do you guys think? What might Paul have meant by spiritual circumcision? What did he mean by what? By the spiritual circumcision. You want to read it again so you can get the picture? Yeah, please, my bad. No, okay. Colossians 2, 12 to 14. Or Colossians 2, we're at what, 11 and 12. <clears throat> So it says, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. <clears throat> so what do you think he means by that spiritual circumcision? Would it mean like that? 
um, like partially that like only God is aware of who is who belongs to him and who, who doesn't because in the like in the Old Testament like the Israelites were circumcised um, but nobody saw them there only God knew and the and one of the reasons that um, he did that was so that they would be set apart but not like unless someone saw them like it wasn't a public thing it wasn't a so it was only God who knew so then spiritual circumcision would be like in our hearts like it's God who sees our heart not um, because that's not something that's evident for everyone to see yeah definitely yeah I'll, yeah I'll add a couple of things here um so like verses 11 and uh, yeah 11 and 12 a couple of things um just just that stand out immediately are are um when it says in him and with him so that that, that that's that's the sign um uh that has that's a link to the spiritual circumcision that we are now in him and we are now with him and that that's a change of position in our lives um change of identity in our lives um that we've been marked by him in a sense uh, you know to be in him you know that's a whole teaching in itself but you know that that's that's just that's just a you know we, we don't just preach about him we don't just talk about him we don't just pray to him you know we are in him and, and he is in us uh, by his holy spirit and so we've been baptized into him um and so i think that's that just connects to that circumcision that we're not part of a group of people only although we are there's a community of faith but it's much more than that now um you know now we are part uh, um we are um we are part of a community and much more than that we are in christ himself um, and which is again, um, as you were talking right now about the Gnostics, this is a slap in the face to them in, in regards, you know, saying, uh, how can the, that Jesus of Galilee uh, do all that? Uh, how can he bring such a revolution? Um, well, because he's God, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, amen. Anybody else? <clears throat> So when I first read it, man, I, you know, I thought about that too, like the old covenant, you know, we're cut off from that now and we now live in Christ in the new covenant, you know, we're dead to that flesh and we're alive to Christ and the spirit. And like Bralia brought up, it's, all, it's more of the heart now, you know, God sees the heart, he weighs the heart. It's always been like that. Um, you know, Abraham had his promises and they had to be circumcised back then. So now, now it's different. You know, now we have Christ. And we're circumcised once we, you know, accept them, basically. We're not part of the world no more. We're not part of the flesh no more. We're supposed to live in the spirit and be part of the spirit. It's kind of how I, I was seeing it. Um, anybody else want to add anything? Or All right, let's move on to the third reason then. Colossians 2, 12 to 14. Paul supplies us with the third reason for why his audience should withstand this heresy that's going around. And he's, he's saying that God has raised them from that spiritual death by virtue of their union with the resurrected Christ. Right? 12 to 14 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So list, give me two achievements that we see here of God in Christ that we read in Colossians 3, 13 to 14. And then reflect on it a little bit and tell me what that means for you guys. You forgave our transgressions? Mm-hmm. So forgiveness, definitely. What else do you see? Um, like redemption, because we're living in him now. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> 
What's that mean? What's the significance for you, bro? Uh, well, I think redemption is like what what most people look for when whenever they choose to like follow Christ, just because of how they lived in their before. So like, because uh, I feel like a lot of people don't or can't get the stuff they did in the past out of their head, but like when they remember that why they were forgiven, then that gives a sense well in the, like a sense of relief kind of because they don't have to like even though the thoughts keep coming back that they don't they don't affect you like they used to anymore all right cool hey man yeah yeah anybody else I see in verse 14, I see forgiveness, right? Forgiven of all our trespasses. And in verse 14, I see that debt cancellation. So everything I owed, my debts are paid. Like, I've been in and out of the court system, so I kind of know how it is. You know, if somebody can pay your debt, then you don't have to pay it no more. I'm free from that debt. I'm free from that crime. Now I can walk away, you know? And for me, that's just, it opens up all kinds of doors because now, you know, I'm forgiven. I live in Christ. I don't have to worry about that debt. All I have to do is just follow him and just be grateful and, you know, for what he's done. And because of that, I can be reunited with the creator, man, the one who made me, who knitted me together in my mother's womb. You know, my heavenly father, bro, he just loves me and, and looks out for me and, and, you know, wants the best for each and every one of us. Although we make certain choices, you know, he's there. Even through the hard times, he's there. Like, no matter what I go through, I know that it's going to be good on the other end. And now I have this hope that's eternal, you know? Like, I don't have to worry so much about all these little, like, temporary things going on in the world. You know, I, I got an eternal future, an eternal hope, and like just that forgiveness of sin and the canceling of my debt has relieved so much. I don't know, man. That's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, bro. And if I had to stand before God and be judged, like, whoa, I don't even think hell would have been enough. Like, honestly, I don't know. So, anybody else? Nobody else, I'll jump in then. <clears throat> so yeah, also forgiveness and um <clears throat> excuse me, I see I'm being um uh being reconciled and I think I think that goes in line with what Benji was saying about being uh redemption. Um mm -hmm. you know, we've been uh we you know, we've been bought with a high price and um and in and, and we've been bought but we all you know, it's not like he purchased us and just left us there. You know, he, he reconciled us. Um, and he's bringing us back into a healthy relationship with the father. And I, and I think that I, I think what you just mentioned right now, that, that debt being cleared is something that we constantly forget in our gratefulness with God, that we have our debt paid. And it says, having nailed it to the cross, it's done. Mm -hmm. Like, it, and that, that's why we can, we can live with assurance because the enemy's going to come and remind us of our sins and try to accuse us for he is the accuser over and over and over and God is not an accuser. Um, uh, he will judge one day, but he's not going to be reminding you of your past and hounding you. That's what the enemy does. Uh, the enemy, because he handicaps, he, he'll make us handicapped that way. Because we won't speak up because we have a past. Well, we, we won't speak up because we've made mistakes. We won't speak up because um, uh, whatever. Uh, you know, man, and, and the enemy will shut many people down. That's why Christians... Sometimes don't want to speak because uh, not because of God, but I think the enemy shuts more people down than God because God doesn't want to shut us down. He wants us to be the light, um, and mm -hmm. we do have something to say. Um, I, I each and every one of you, um, once you give your life to Christ, you have something valuable to say, um, and that's period. Um, not because you're a teacher or not a teacher. It's just because you're because you've been forgiven and you've been reconciled <laughs> and you've been redeemed and your dad's been canceled. So just right there, you have something to say. Um, so yeah, 
Um, so that's, I think that, that's good the way you put it. Um, how Paul uh, counter, you know, he, he sets these counterattacks almost um, and these rebuttals back to, uh, you, I think he says this is like the third one or something. Um, yeah. and, and that's really good because it, it is true. When you, I never thought about it, that when you look at it, I guess he is, it's more of a polemic, um, uh, there's more of a polemic feel, an argue, uh, you know, a good argument here. Um, and that is true because if people are reminded of their forget that they've been forgiven, reminded that they're that they've been reconciled, and reminded that the debt is cleared. When you when you know you're debt free, you don't live worrying about the debt, right? When you're yeah. debt free, you sleep good. <laughs> In fact, you're you're just happy for no reason. I mean, you I mean you're just happy because you're like I don't know anybody anything. You know, yeah. and it just feels good to be there. You know, it could be a small debt, but you're like, dude, I don't have a debt. You know, and, you know, you could be poor, but if you don't have a debt, you're happy because you don't owe. And that's the whole thing that our poverty in Christ is richness. Um, you know, we're poor, but because of him, we're made rich. In other words, we have a blank check written out um, and Christ is, is signing it saying, you know, this is yours. Um, and, you know, and, and obviously, you know, we don't we don't know what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be one day, but in this earth, we've been, our debt is cleared. So, and then I just ramble on. So, yeah. <laughs> Anybody else want to add a little bit or reflect on those things? Tell us what the significance is for you guys. All right, let's look at the fourth reason then that Paul supplies for us to resist these false teachings. And that's in uh, Colossians 2.15. So there's this abundant evidence, right, of this ancient Greco-Roman world that people live in fear of, like, spirits and the, and the fear of, like, the demonic realm that was going on at that time. They were often preoccupied a lot of times with how to appease these other gods or these, you know, we would say straight up demons, you know, but they, they were always like preoccupied. How do we appease them? How do we do this? You know, so, so we can get rain or so we can do this or so that gods won't be mad at us. How do we appease them? How do we appease these demons, this, this things that are going on so bad things don't happen to us? So the, the, the heresy, I believe, offered a way for them to appease these rulers and authorities that we read about earlier, you know, say the rulers and authorities, or at least they claim to provide some kind of protection possibly from them, you know, which was a reason to get these, you know, the people that are in Christ that have no worry about that and shouldn't be worried about that to, to kind of go, well, what if I did mess up? Maybe I do need to listen to these guys. So let's read Colossians 2.15 real quick. It says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So how does Paul's teaching in Colossians 2.15 surpass what the heresy offers? Pretty simple question. Who wants to jump on? Can you repeat your question? How does Paul's teaching, Paul's teaching in, in Colossians 2.15, how does that surpass what the heresy offers? So how is that like going above what the heresy is offered? Okay. Well, it says that he triumphs over them regardless, so. It is pretty, pretty straightforward, <laughs> right? Like Paul's like straight up, he's uh, he disarmed them, he disarmed the rulers, he disarmed the authorities, he put them to open shame, he triumphed over them. He do all that in Christ. Yeah. He, like, why are you guys blessed? Yeah, like when Jesus Christ nails like all of our debt to the cross, like and defeated, like it says that he the Bible says that he defeated and conquered death and sin. And obviously, like it's the dark powers are are in like or dark realms that are that have that kind of power and so when he did that like he took away their authority over the lives of people over the souls of people and that's why it says that he disarmed them and their authorities and he made them like to be publicly ashamed because 
he declared that he was stronger than them and no one and like whoever clings to christ now like will never have to be under their authority or their chains or be enslaved to those things ever again because he's over them yep yep amen anybody else want to add a little bit or All right, let's look at Colossians 2, 16 to 19 now. So this is going to be the title, Let No, Let no One Condemn Me. So basically the old covenant uh, regulations and the visionary experience that was going on. So we had the four reasons that were provided by Paul. And this is where he kind of draws it to that conclusion that the faithful Colossians should not adhere to the heresy they shouldn't pass judgment or disqualify them you know we went over each one individually but let's just read it again real quick we'll go through it and then we'll, we'll go all the way to uh, verse 19 it says we'll read again from verse 9 where in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in details about vision, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So according to Colossians 2.19, what do you guys see as the fundamental problem with the false teachers, you know, that result in their vain and arrogant spirit that they had? What do you think puffed them up? Or where are they messing up at? Self-abasement is that like a <clears throat> like uh what is that? Is that like showing off or what? Or boasting? What was your question, bro? What what's self-abasement? Self-abasement. So that would be in verse eighteen, right? Let no one disqualify you, insisting on. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Mine says as asceticism and worship of angels. So asceticism, mine would be like severe self-discipline. So, so it would be like avoiding certain indulgences, maybe, or like severely disciplining yourself to like resist certain things. You know what I mean? So like maybe going overboard with like a fast <laughs> or, you know, who knows, maybe cutting yourself for some other purpose or something like that. Usually it, it's got to do with, with a religious reason behind it. Would it be like almost practicing like um, self-hatred or no? Um, I don't think it'd be like, hatred because it's going to be for like a religious purpose to like grow yourself religiously it would be like a fast but maybe going to uh, i like, think i think it's more like self-approval 
So I think yeah. what they were doing most likely is like, oh, I sinned, I gotta freaking like slap myself or something a hundred times, you know, or, or something like severe like that. Like mm. the way they're like, I gotta do the right thing according to the law. Yeah, I think it's more like self-approval because uh, where it says, and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So maybe it's just like they think more of themselves than what they really are. Yeah, and and so like so, so self-abasement also, for example, in keep you know keeping in mind the context. So the so a lot of these Jewish leaders and and uh, even cultish leaders or sects or whatever, you know they they thought by by you know by keeping away from certain drinks by doing eating certain foods by keeping certain festivals um, by outward forms of customs and appearances that they were going to be able to um, uh, humble themselves um, in the self-abasement that they were going to be able to uh, restrain them. I'm sorry, gain God's favor by restraining certain things. For example, there's a lot of people who, who set higher standards than Jesus for the gospel, <laughs> which I find amazing. Uh, I mean, it's extremely sad, but I just find it amazing that, um, you know, that it's, it's, it, people have a higher standard than Jesus for those who are not saved. Um, you know, you got to dress this way. You got to live this way. You got to eat this. You got to uh, go to this type of church. You got to sing this kind of music. You, I mean, and it's like, well, the Bible doesn't really say anything like that. It says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Um, you know, and faith is not consistent of these things. And that's, I think that's what it, what it's trying to get at because, the, the, a lot of people, by outward forms, they can give an appearance of true humility or godliness or piety, but it's just outward. Um, and at the end, it's empty. And it's, it's empty because um, uh, it's not going to gain you favor with God or it's not going to get you any closer with God necessarily if it's not done from the heart. Um, you know, a lot of people used to live like monks and they used to go to the, the you know, Go to a certain part of the mountain as high as possible, as far as possible, and from from us sinners, and um, you know not wear the type of clothes we wear, not eat the food that we eat, not watch what we watch, to try to reach a certain utopia of holiness, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. Um, uh, that, that you know, so so yeah, so the self basement you gotta be careful uh, because. Um, uh, we can be we, we, we can be very legalistic in it, um, even with ourselves. Even if we're not implying it on others, we can be legalistic, and we can't. And then we want to enjoy Christ. Um, you know, we should we should enjoy Christianity, not dread it. Um, I'm not saying that all of them who do that dread it, but um, you know, some of them actually do enjoy that type of lifestyle. Um, so yeah. Bralia sent over the definition too of belittling or humiliation of oneself, which would go with the beginning of the verse where it says, let no one dis let no one disqualify you insisting on you know self-abasement or belittling you or humiliation of oneself. It's a um, in psychology, so this is what another one says, in psychology, self-abasement is associated with shame rather than guilt. It involves the reduction of the subject's self-esteem. The notion of self-abasement can be said to be based in Freudian psychoanalysis. So fear may also result in self-abasement. So yeah, I think like what you were saying, Homer goes a long way with it also. You know, he's basically telling you, let no one disqualify you, right? Don't let anybody bring you down over worshiping angels or being puffed up in their own little visions and saying they're seeing things and putting on that godly like outward look you know to try to make you feel like you're not worthy or you're not good enough or something you know because in christ like we are good enough <laughs> like, so, okay sounds good anybody else want to add anything to it The question was, what was the fundamental problem with the false teachers? What do you think resulted in those vain and arrogant spirits? That they did not abide to the head being Christ. Amen. 
That's exactly what happened. They're not God. All right, let's move on then. Um, Colossians 2, we're going to read verses 20 to 23. And this is where we're dead with Christ, you know, to all those demonic powers and to the fallen age and all those man-made religions and other things going on. So verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulation? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. For these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism again and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So we see that the Colossians still live, you know, in a fallen age, right? They lived in the world. But they had to die, they had died in Christ's death to the powers that held that that power over them, that held the sway over their lives. You know, if we compare that to Galatians 104, where it says, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever? Amen. Well, to Christ, obviously, right? So, in your own words, describe like the characteristics of the false teaching as we read in these verses. <clears throat> well, off the cuff is one of them is is they were more concerned over the do's and the don'ts than they were of, of what's been completed in Christ. That's one. Um, so they were, the, the, the reason why they're false, and a lot of times we think of false and we, and all these alarms trigger on, um, but um, there, there's a lot of falseness all over, all over around us. And so we have to be, in, we have to understand that falseness doesn't come presenting itself as false. Um, and so uh, we have to test, we have to test everything to the light of scripture, to truth. And so when you put it, as Barley said, when Christ is not the head, when he's not being exalted, when he's not um, governing the body, when he's not, um, when he's not, the, when he is not the center of the focus, then we will be and our efforts. And so that just, and so we can easily fall into that ourselves. Um, so a lot of times, you know, like I said, falseness is not going to come with the sign in his forehead saying, Hey, by the way, I'm, I'm false right? You know, it doesn't work that way. And so neither, you know, neither do we walk around saying, um, you know, I'm not false, right? You know, and so we, we gotta, we just gotta test it all with scripture. And, um, and I, in these, you know, where it says do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, you know, um, you know, why do you submit yourself to these decrees, right? And so these things are not going to profit you anything. Uh, they're not going to, um, uh, they're they're not going to get you any closer to God if God is not the center. For example, if I'm if I'm fasting and I'm not eating or if I'm not or, or I'm not I'm restraining myself from from touching something or from or from whatever it is. If I'm consecrating myself, that could be profitable if Christ is the reason and the motive. However, if I'm fasting for the purpose of you know I don't know whatever it is uh, for anything else but that. Of Jesus Christ and you know and I say fasting because that's one of the one of the areas that I personally have have seen the, the one of the um, misunderstandings of why we fast and uh, and a lot of people you know for example they, they think it's it's a whole day or they think it's um, uh, whatever it is a week a month you know that we have we have extra biblical teachings about it and then we try to compare ourselves to people who are doing it or been doing it for years yeah it, but it's like Bible study you know, you talk to a theologian, you're not going to study like he studies. <laughs> you're not. You're not going to spend 18 hours every day or 13 hours yeah. every day. And so, and, and you're not going to read what he's reading. And so we're not, we're not, we, we shouldn't be doing that. It's not about the do's and the don'ts. It's about Christ in your life. Um, and then you build yourself from there. Um, but yeah, we got to be really careful with that because that can uh, lead us to uh, um, self-made religion, like Paul says, um, self-made is the key thing there. 
Oh, one more thing. So, in when also when it says if, so verse twenty, mm-hmm. I want to make sure we understand that it doesn't say since. Okay, so none of your versions will say since. It'll always say if, and that if is not italicized. That if is in the Greek. So it's 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 in condition of this. If you have died with Christ, not since you have died with Christ. So he's not assuming that everybody reading this letter is a Christian. It's like when it's like when we're in church and we're wherever we're at, we cannot assume that everybody's just a follower of Christ. He's he's making it clear if you have died with Christ, you know, to the world. Why, as if you were living to the world, do you submit yourself? So again, he's not saying since, and um, you'll see this, and I told you guys many times over and over, the television and radio preachers will sometimes say since in these areas. They'll just say, they won't even tell you. They'll just say, since you died with Christ, and they'll keep reading. And so, you, you, I mean, one day, hopefully, you guys will catch one. And you'll be like, aha, I caught one. And, uh, and you'll, they just assume it. Um, and so, because it sounds better. It really does. It sounds really good. Um, you know, especially if you have a conference packed with 2,000 people. It sounds really good. It looks good. Um, you know, you, you want ratings? You say, since. Um, and even, even um, commentaries will say, Paul really meant since, not if. You know, okay, I, I go with Paul instead of your version, but you know, so just wanted to throw that in there. Nugget of gold. Amen. So let me ask you another question since we're on the topic. <clears throat> what do you think made these things so attractive to the Colossians and the disciples at that time? I think that there might always, not always, but I think that in human nature, there, there is like this temptation to want to make things right in our, by our own understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, just like Adam and Eve, like instead of running to the Lord when they fell, like they hid and then they try to fix what they did wrong by sowing, like, I think it was, I don't know, mm-hmm. leaves together. Yeah. So I think that like we inherit that from them that we that we naturally like want to do things right but like in our own way and so then when someone or something like says like I can't you can do you can get right with God or you can live right doing a b c like sometimes that's more tempting than living under the grace that we've been given Mm -hmm. um I don't know. Yeah. That's no, my thought. Hey, you know, that's you're right. You know, what brother saying right now, that is, that is very true. I, 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 um, I, read, I read a little bit about that. And that is very true that people would rather them just, for example, just tell me what I need to do to be right with God. Just tell me, mm-hmm. you know, the rich young ruler, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Right. He asked Jesus, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I already done this X, Y, Z. I keep all the commandments, you know, I just want to know what to do so I can just, and it's like, you know, Jesus said, well, one thing you lack, right? You know, go sell everything you own and give it to the poor, right? The very thing he loved, he wasn't doing, you know, the very, you know, he loved money and he, that's, you know, he, he was doing everything else, but he didn't let go of that. Well, us too. Yeah. I think brother's right about that. I think that people just prefer, they want, you know, just tell me what I need to do. And uh, I'll do it. And, and, and I think that that's the checklist mentality that God does not want us to have. Um, and I think that goes in line with self-made religion. Because if, if, you know, if I wake up in the morning, I do my prayer, I say my prayers, I read my scripture, and I go live my life, you know, that's not really what Jesus wants, you know, right? You know, and so, um, and kind of be the light, you know, kind of be the salt, and um, kind of go to church, and kind of do the Christian thing, right? And, you know, <laughs> yeah. And so, and I, yeah, that's that's very true. I probably said right now. That's perfect. I think a lot of times too. So we have that uh, mentality, like if if it's too easy, it can't be right, kind of deal, you know? Because like, think about the concept, man. Like in Christ, we're free. Like that's it. It's, it really is that simple. It seems like almost too simple. Where you're like, nah, it's got to be something, bro. Like. 
So when someone comes, and then again, like in those times, you know, it was all about following like the commandments, the rules, keeping the Sabbath, keeping certain traditions. So I'm sure when they came talking about, hey, do this, this, and this, and you're good. And like Vaya said, it's already like in our human nature to just want to, really? I can do that and that's it? And I'll be good with God? Cool, then let me do it, you know? And then, but there's still something in the heart, like the rich and ruler, where he's like, I've kept all the commands, but I know there's got to be something else, man. I know there is, you know? And I think we fall into that a lot because it, it seems like it just seems too simple. So it's got to be something, right? So I think that too adds a little bit. That was good. Good stuff. Anybody else want to add anything? I think like in verse 20, like after it mentions all of the things that happen when you don't like keep your eyes fixed on Christ or abide in him that all of the that we end up doing in order to make ourselves somehow right are of no value against self against what is a fleshly indulgences so no amount of discipline no amount of like lists that we follow no amount of rules are gonna at the end prevent us from like falling into the things that we're trying so hard not to fall in like you can do it all try and do it on your own but at the end of the day, if you struggle with lust, if you struggle with lying, if you struggle with whatever it is that you're struggling with, like all of those things are not going to heal you. They're not going to like uproot what is the issue because you're still just trying to, in a sense, cover up what needs to be like uprooted. And that can only be done with Christ abiding in you and him replacing those things with himself. Mm. Yeah, amen. All right, let's go through a few things real quick. Let's look at uh, some of the gospel that we see in these verses. So we see a union with Christ, right? a central pillar of Paul's thought surfaces in Colossians 2, 6-15. And he uses that, that phrase, in him, or with him, speaking about Christ at, at very key points in his argument. You know, Paul understands that, that the believers enjoy this unbreakable and everlasting spiritual union with Christ. And this began the moment that they first placed their trust in him. Right? So let's just read it again real quick and, and, and pay attention and look how many times he says in him or with him and how Paul uses it to drive home the points that he's trying to make. Right? So Colossians 2, 6 to 15. We're looking for in him and with him and see how it, how it emphasizes the points he's driving. It says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So it's all about Christ, in Christ and with Christ. That's it. That's the union. This is the gospel. Because of this union, what is true of Christ, it becomes... Uh, true of his followers derivatively <clears throat> we are filled with God's fullness um, 
by virtue of our union with him, we are also filled. We've seen that in Colossians 2, 9 through 10. So in his circumcision or in his death, we are, we are circumcised, Colossians 2, 11. In his burial and resurrection, we too have under, undergone this burial and we have new life, Colossians 2, 12 to 13. And in his defeat of those demonic powers, we can experience victory as well. Colossians 2, 10, verse, verses 10, 15, and 20. Also, the head-body metaphor in the letter is another way of describing this relationship. You know, and this is also true for us today, all believers in Christ. You know, we are the body of Christ. Colossians 1, verses 18 and 24. 18 says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Colossians 2.19, Not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. You know, we can also compare it to like Ephesians 1, uh, verses 22 to 23, where it says, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, Ephesians 4, 15 to 16. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love ephesians 5 23 for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior and we can also see in first corinthians 12 verses 20 uh 12 to 31 if you guys want to read it, we're getting short on time, so I'm going to push past that so we can make time for it. Um, also, we see dying and rising with Christ, right? Paul teaches that believers, by virtue of their union with Christ, have died and been raised in Christ's death and resurrection. So this means that we no longer belong to the fallen world and present evil age that we're in. You know, by virtue of Christ's work for us on the cross and our union with him, the world's powers are likewise no longer enslaving us. You know, we are free from that penalty and we're free from the power of sin. You know, this includes the freedom from those elemental spirits we read about earlier of the world, the satanic forces that oppress the fallen world and the device of false worldviews, you know, that lead many people astray. Um, let's keep going. <clears throat> let's look at some of the connections he makes for the whole Bible. So in Colossians 1.19, this echoes the language from the Old Testament concerning God's presence in the temple at Zion. Right? Paul writes that in the dawning of the new age in Christ, the divine presence is now found in a person. It is not found in the building anymore. He says that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the Shekinah. Isn't that, is that it? The glory of God. So this stunning revelation, it develops even further as, as uh, disciples discover that by union with Christ, we become this extension of the temple, right? Colossians 2.10, they are the, the particular place of the divine presence in the world, those are the believers, both individually and corporately as one body and one church. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.16-17. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. That was 1 Corinthians 3. I think I said Colossians. My bad if I did. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17 is what I read. And 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. And then we also see the circumcision of Christ. The Old Testament prescribed circumcision for every male member of Abraham's family 
as a sign of a covenant membership and as a symbol of consecration to God. Right, Genesis 17, 9 to 14 speaks about that. Uh, I guess we can read it real quick. For then God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the of the covenant between me and you. For he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So women were included also in this covenant, but by virtue of their link with the men. You know, according to Paul, Christ's death has now provided all of his people with a spiritual circumcision that marks us all out as members of the new covenant people of God. The symbol has been given um, the way to the promised reality that enables Christians to live out a true consecration to God. Uh, look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It says, And the Lord your God will, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. I think this is was talking about the future in Christ, because now we are circumcised like we spoke about earlier, it's more of the heart, right? It's more of a spiritual circumcision. Some of this theology that we see, we see Paul, Jesus, the Lord, right? The fundamental confession of devotion in the early church. Jesus is Lord. That was their confession. Colossians 2.6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Philippians 2, 11, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Greek word for Lord is the same used in the Greek Old Testament. <clears throat> and this is the word that is used to translate the personal name of God. The, I think it's called the Tetracom, the four letters, the Y-H-W-H. So the implications of this for like the identity of who Jesus was is unmistakable to them. Like at the same time, though, the New Testament documents are equally insistent that there is only one God, right? So we see this, this beautiful Christological monotheism. One God, Christ is God, you know, Father, Son, we see that's how we get the Trinity. And that's what characterizes the entire New Testament witness about Jesus. You know, and it's definitely in Paul's letters to the Colossians, like, big time. Also, we see a lot of false worldviews and we see demonic powers. So nowadays, it's kind of politically incorrect in our world for, for there to just be one worldview. Like, people just don't want to have that, right? You can't tell them that they have a false view or denounce any other view as false at all. But the Bible, the Bible doesn't hesitate to do that at all. It really does. From Paul's point of view, any worldview that would lead people away from the one true God 
as revealed in the gospel of Christ, was a man-made creation whose source was ultimately demonic, right? Such demonic powers that held sway over the world and enslaved it through lies and by playing upon people's fears. In love, the Christian scriptures offers an ultimate worldview that we see, and it asserts that it is the only true one. Sorry, world. I know you can hate us for it, but we just care. We want you to know this. So Christians gotta, you know, take care not to succumb too quickly to the noise and, and to the shouts and to all the things that are calling and the people calling for like tolerance. But before we think through this stuff and before we think through the scriptures, you know, don't don't just fall into that be tolerant of everything view. Like we have to stand firm on the scripture. We have to stand firm on the truth that don't change. You know, we gotta know how how to apply the scriptures to the postmodern context that we live in, the world that we're in right now. So I, I think I'm gonna leave it there. We're gonna jump into Colossians 3 next time. Now that we can get fresh start on Colossians 3, you guys got any questions or comments?